0: Well good morning everyone. We are, just as a reminder, testing out some new technology today so I hope that your hearing is loud and clear. A huge amount of work went into this week. I think 20 hours of YouTube tutorials alone were watched just to make the nest of wires that I can see. Make this sound a bit clearer for you. If there's any problems at all in what you see or hear right now, there'll be a recording that we post in an hour's time as well. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the resurrection. We thank you, Lord God, that having died, you defeated the grave and that you rose and that you ascended and that you will return to redeem and to remake and to renew this broken world. And we pray, God, in confidence that you would come, Lord Jesus, soon and do this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, our series is called Resurrected God and we saw last week that the reason for the resurrection is you. Our world is broken. Our health is on the line. Our economies are failing. We cannot even visit our own families. And you don't have to look beyond the first box of the new sermon bulletin graphic to see that we're in trouble. And one of the most common theological questions being asked right now is, if God is real, what is he doing? What is he going to do about this trouble that we are in? And the resurrection is the simple answer. Let's turn to John's gospel. Let's look at chapter 20, as we see that the resurrection is heaven's hope for a broken world. The resurrection is a foretaste of what is yet to come. And we pick up the Easter story this morning or afternoon, if you're watching in the UK or Russia, seems to be quite popular there still. We pick up the the story in John 20, verse 19, on the evening of that day. So it's still Easter Sunday in the story. The first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. The disciples are locked in a house. And people tell me that Scripture is no longer relevant anymore. (laughs) They're on a lockdown. Like many of us locked in that room, they are afraid. Their leader has just been killed. These are well-known associates of Jesus. They're not thinking straight. Their brains are scrambled with fear. They're not thinking about any of the prophecies that Jesus made or any of the promises that Jesus made. They're not thinking of the works that Jesus did. They are fixated on their fear. Fear does this to you. It prevents you from thinking straight. Fear blinds you to the truth and it takes away any sense of hope that you have and it amplifies your sense of danger. Fear makes danger feel worse and takes your eyes off hope. It's a spirit of fear that has hold of these guys in the room where they are. Uh, But then, we're still in verse 19, it says, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now, this would be shocking. The door is locked. He is dead. Last time they saw him, they had failed him miserably. One of them had betrayed him. One of them had denied him. Two of them had bickered at the Last Supper over who was the best disciple. And all of them had fallen asleep in the garden when Jesus said to them on that last day, I just want one thing, guys, for you to stay awake. And they know the news of Resurrection Sunday because two of them have seen the evidence and at least one of them has believed it. But they are doing nothing Here we are in the evening. The women are doing all the work. Isn't it always the case, ladies? The men, what are they doing? They're sitting around. They're afraid, and they're sitting about. It is just a very mixed-up time of fear that is explicit in the passage and guilt. I'm reading that into the history of the last few days, characterised by inactivity, paralysed, I believe they are, in a spiral of negativity fear has this ability fear has this ability to enhance guilt which in turn has this ability to enhance fear they go well together don't they fear and guilt a perfect pairing like fish and chips like uh, guns and roses like peanut butter and jelly like peanut butter and a trash can if you ask me Fear and guilt, fear and guilt, they just go so well together. Unholy bedfellows, isolation in fear and in guilt can make you spiral down very quickly indeed. And if we take our eyes off the Lord and the promises of the Lord and the prophecies of the Lord and the work of the Lord, it accelerates. It just gets quicker and quicker. And so it is awesome that the very first thing that Jesus says to them as he speaks into this heady cocktail, of fear and guilt and peanut butter is a better word, a new word that breaks the spiral. He says peace. Peace is a huge word in the Bible, enormous word in the Bible. It means many things. All of them are good. Rest, quietness, prosperity, the end of war, Security, safety, harmony. When Jesus says it, he alone can imbue this word peace with one more meaning, salvation. Salvation comes from the Lord. The New Testament word, irene, means all of these things, and it's linked to the Old Testament word, shalom, which is a huge word encapsulating everything good that we can say about God, that everything good comes from God, and it testifies to a relationship with God that has been restored. He loves you. All of that in one word. What a sermon. We're afraid, and we're feeling guilty and we're trapped in our homes, and we're on our own, and we're seeing this broken world just fall apart even more. We have a risen Savior who approaches us in the midst of our spiral down and says a one-word sermon, peace, and it just tells you everything that you need to know at a time like this. They've done nothing to deserve this peace. What have they done? other than bicker and deny him and betray him, chop some bloke's ear off, have a fight and fall asleep, and then sit around while the women do all the work. What have they done to deserve the peace? Absolutely nothing. It is a gift of grace from the God of grace, and it is entirely consistent with who he is. Like everything God does, it is entirely consistent with who he is. I want you to note some things about peace. Note that peace is not just a quote-unquote spiritual thing. It's not a hippy-dippy, tie-dyed T-shirt, sort of come on people now, smile on your brother, smoke if you've got him kind of a piece. This is not a feeling about Jesus, man. This is Jesus, the actual Jesus. Verse 20 shows us that this is not a feeling about Jesus, but the actual Jesus physically there in the flesh. And he says... It says here in John's Gospel, verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. One word sermon, and then this physical proximity to Christ. His body, his dead body, has resurrected. And he still ba- bears the marks and the flesh of his death. He still bears the marks of the death that he defeated. God's plan is starting to get clearer in this moment. It is not to pick us up out of this material world and drop us off in some ethereal, wafty, heavenly, spiritual one somewhere on a cloud. It is to return and to renew this world. Those scars and those marks of the cross that just days earlier brought shame now bring glory. It is heaven's hope for a broken world. God is there in their midst. And it says the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. That's an understatement. Glad it's him. Glad he's alive. Glad they're forgiven. Maybe all of it all in one big mix of good stuff now. Now, he promised this in chapter 16. The prophecies were rolling right until the last minute from the lips of Christ Jesus. In chapter 16 of John's gospel, it says, Your sorrow will turn to joy. It just did. Then, verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. Why a reminder? Well, probably because they need it. Unless it's a renewal, unless it's more peace, because what he's about to say to them will disturb them again. That's another possibility. Look with me, please, at what Jesus says. And if you have young people with you, show them the text. As the Father has sent me, apostello in uh, the original Greek, from which we get the word apostle, sending, sent, sent one. As uh, I send, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Different word for send this time, but you know a fairly similar meaning. You know, ben was reading. Ben Woolpe was reading and sharing with me this week. The first word is about authority. The second word is kind of about actually getting on and and using it. As the Father has, has sent me, I am sending you. Authority, get on and use it. Go. Lose your fear. Lose your guilt. And then use your authority and use your peace to spread it, to go and do something. Now at this point, if you're with me, if you're tracking with me and you're with Jesus and you're like, okay, I'm I'm here, I'm going to do this, your question might be, how? How am I going to go and spread it? Please just, if you do have the word open, zoom in with me even more on verse 21. Note what Jesus says again. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Not Like the Father has sent me. Not in a dialed down, emulated, low fat, child's play kind of a version of how God sent me. It says as, which means just as, in as much as, to the same proportion or degree as, exactly as, God has, past tense, sent me, Jesus. You know, the member of the Trinity who died to save the world and rose from the dead, like that, exactly as that, I am sending you in the present. I am, Jesus says, with authority, sending you out to do exactly what I do. That is a big call. That is a disturbing idea, is it not, church? Because what is it that God sent Jesus to do? He sent Jesus to die for the world. So you see now, don't you, why they need some peace. He is sending them out to fight. He is commissioning them to a battlefield position to proclaim heaven's hope to a broken world. For most of the disciples, this will end as, just as, in as much as, to the same proportion or degree as, exactly as it ended for Jesus, which is on across. The very thing that they were afraid of a few moments ago, they now go out and do. Now, you only have to turn over the pages of your Bible, just a couple of pages, to the book of Acts to see that they actually do this, to see that that it just goes wild. Suddenly, they're just proclaiming all sorts of stuff. There's a huge crowd of people. They're so up for it that some hecklers think that they're even drunk. They're not drunk. They're just having a good time. And they're filled with the Holy Spirit. But uh, something changes here. Some, some switch is flicked in the hearts of the disciples that suddenly sends them into a new place spiritually. Something allows them to face their fear with peace and to face their guilt with hope, and not only to face it, but to preach it. What is it that happens? Because if we can answer that question, then we might have a chance at no longer being afraid. If we can answer that question, we might actually become useful. Verse 22, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This breathing is not incidental. It's not a metaphor. It's not like a little detail to show us that Jesus' lungs are really working. This is resurrection breathing. This breathing is meaningful. The word breathed in the original Greek is emphusao. It's unique. This word does not appear anywhere else in the whole of the New Testament. It appears just a few times in the Greek version of the Old Testament. And whenever it appears, emphusao, it is always to do with life. You get this in Genesis. This is what I love about the children's ministry. Josh you know, picked up the resurrection story in Genesis. That's because it's there. Chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed, it's the very same word, into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Ezekiel 37. Verse 9 prophesies to an entire valley of the dead that the Lord will breathe into these bones of the slain and they will animate, they will come alive as an army of the Lord. This is the kind of breathing that only God can do and it is the kind of breathing that always brings about life. This is God breathing life, breathing breath from Christ Jesus here. We have got nothing else like it. Science can put oxygen into the lungs of the living if they have enough machines, but those that survive will die again. Jesus can put life into the bodies of the dead and they will never die again. They will resurrect. In fact, not only will they never die again, they will bring other people alive. They will spread it. Now, if you go out today and you breathe on someone like this, you will get arrested. So I don't mean this literally. Don't go like, ha, onto someone's face. Uh, That's weird, all right? That's not a good idea, church. Please don't do that. Uh, But when Jesus does it, it's different. And the people are talking to each other in the room and saying, we're going to do it. Don't do it, all right? When Jesus does this breathing, something miraculous occurs. He takes some people who are trapped, who are locked down, who are living in guilt and they're living in fear and they are useless. And he suddenly breathes into them life and they come alive and they go out and they start bringing other people alive as well. He does it by grace. He brings them peace. So I just want to say to you this, if there's some part of your life that is locked down, that is characterized by fear, and and characterized by guilt why not ask the risen lord to breathe some new life into it i mean how is your home how are your family doing how's your marriage how's your work how are your finances how is your health is there some area of your life that you would like the lord to breathe on ask him to do it he is risen There are other illnesses, aside from COVID-19 right now, that normally we think of as being incredibly serious. Maybe that's you. Maybe you feel forgotten in your regular suffering because everyone else is suddenly in on the action. Ask the Lord to breathe into that. Ask, Ask your church to pray. And you might be on the very cusp of giving up in one of those areas, particularly if it's one of those social ones and you're kind of stuck with people who are driving you mad. But if God can breathe life into mud and into bone and into the crucified, then he can breathe life into whatever it is that's, that's got you this week. I heard news recently of my friend Bill in Red Hill. And our new technology enables me to show you a picture of Bill in Red Hill. Now, I don't have a screen, so I can't quite tell if I'm too close or too far away, but I'm guessing. Here's Bill in Red Hill. He's aged 97 now. That was me seeing him in the hospital on vacation two or three years ago when I heard he was unwell. I am actually amazed and thrilled that Bill is still alive, because last time I saw him, he told me that he was dying. And I went to see him in Red Hill Hospital. Uh, on an open ward with six or seven other guys all around. And he was preaching from what he thought was his deathbed. And he said, amongst other things, he said, we are dying, Alex, in quite a, a loud voice. He said, this is the room where they bring you just before you die. And there's like, <laughs> these are the guys in the room who had no idea. Like, I, I just had an ingrowing growing toenail. What do you mean? Like, he was really putting the fear on them. Uh, I don't know if they all knew uh, how bad it was. I don't even know if it was true, but you know he wouldn't waste the opportunity. He said, many of them will be wheeled out of here, Alex, and they have no hope. They don't have what we have. They don't have Jesus, Alex. They don't know about paradise. They don't know that we'll be together for eternity and that it will be perfect with Jesus. They don't know that he rose from the dead. This is a dude who's wired up on a deathbed, yelling his head off about Jesus, and he continued at, at full volume, they're dying two deaths, Alex, and they don't know that they only need to die one. There's guy's in there like, <laughs> you know, what's going on? I hope some of them converted. It's too late if they didn't, I'm sure of it. Bill did not waste the opportunity, it's so cool. Um, Two churches that I love are worshipping together right now on this feed. That's so awesome. Maybe Bill hears this. He was going for it. He was not going to waste a minute of what he had to say. And uh, in fact, actually, if anything, that room presented itself as an opportunity for the gospel, as he saw it, a broken room was an opportunity to proclaim the hope of the resurrection. And our passage ends with a verse about this. Now, it is a weird verse. It is strangely written, hard to understand initially. And uh, at first look, it looks like an afterthought. But I, I don't think it is. If there is death and there is fear and there is guilt going on in the passage, then I don't think it's an afterthought. I think it's the kind of application that Bill sees. And it says this. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, it doesn't mean that you are God and that you get to go around choosing who is forgiven and who isn't. Look really carefully at the weird way that it is written for a clue. If you forgive them, that's very direct, they are forgiven or it is forgiven them. That's very passive. And if you don't forgive them, then they are not forgiven. That's very passive again. If you don't do it, someone else won't do it. It's a divine passive telling us that actually this forgiveness comes from God and that their job is simply to go around talking about it. They've just been commissioned by Jesus to do what exactly? To bring peace. To say if you are riddled with guilt, suffused with fear, Jesus loves you. Turn to him and be forgiven by him. And say what? You know, Jesus died for you. And Jesus rose for you. And Jesus will return for you as well. And he can forgive you. And not only forgive you, he can send you out and make you useful. They are bold enough now to proclaim this stuff because they've received the Holy Spirit. What should we expect next, church? We should expect that COVID-19 has done us a favor we should expect a revival of the church. A pruning as some people slip away who were maybe never in in the first place and a revival of those who get it. In my experience, people are most ready for Jesus when their world has fallen to pieces. When all the things they used to trust, the idols and the false gods in which they put their trust and their lives were founded upon when they're smashed, they give up on life or they turn to Jesus Christ and receive it. It's always the same way. And then they're ready to proclaim it. That's our job in this season. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, make us ready to proclaim the forgiveness of God and the hope of God. Father God, we preach against fear asking that you would cast out and cast away that fear from our homes and that guilt from our hearts. If any of us in this very moment is afraid, afraid of you, afraid of death, afraid of of our lives, afraid for our families, God, would you speak into that a better word of peace and would you blow through our hearts? God, there are pregnant people in our church. Would you fill them with your Holy Spirit and bring them safely uh, through childbirth? God, there are people in our church who are sick with other conditions, and we speak to those conditions in the matchless name of Christ, and we we pray healing in the power of Jesus Christ over those people. God, there are people in our church whose, whose marriages are breaking down, and the only reason they've not split up is because the government's forced them to live in the same room. God, this is the time that you would transform that marriage and renew it. Father, every relationship could be transformed by you. And so we pray and we speak the power of your spirit. We breathe your spirit, God, into those broken places. And we ask God for a revival of this church. Amen. Amen.